You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. Join our email listserv, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, here with my colleague Blair Thompson-White for another summer soul-tending bonus episode. Hi, Blair. Hi, Lisa. It's good to be with you again. So we're doing something a little different this episode. We are re-releasing our interview with Todd Bolsinger from 2021. This conversation is so good that we really think it's worth hearing again. While the beginning does reference the pandemic, it's all really incredibly relevant to where we are right now. How do we manage change and stress and resistance without burning out? A big part of the how is soul tending. So Todd talks a lot about the rule of life and a leader's attentiveness to spiritual disciplines that support the leader as they navigate change. So Blair, what are your observations from this conversation with Todd? I think the first, just right at the beginning, is is we jump into um, him sharing about his idea of resilience and his definition of it. And certainly that's the name of his book, Tempered Resilience. And uh, at the time in 2021, man, we were all about that word, resilience, (laughs) and we, we just couldn't get enough of it. And now I think we've observed that, like, we're all kind of sick of it. Like we're sick of having to be resilient all the time. And yeah, and so I it's think exhausting. it's important for us to name that at the beginning that um, we recognize that, that this word resilience is one that we all are just really worn out with. But here we are with Todd Bolsinger helping us to to reframe it. I mean, he does such a great job at the beginning of helping us to see it's not, you know, oftentimes we think that it's just about making it through hard times, right. hanging in there. But he says, you know, really it's about maintaining core purpose and integrity in the midst of all the changes. And so when we see it like that, I mean, of course, it's something we need to be paying especially attention to right now. Yeah, that's a really great note. And I, I also think that when we get weary about the word resilience, we're thinking that as we look at all the circumstances around us, that we just have to push through, plow through, mm. you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And that's not at all what he's talking about. Right. You know, he's really, he's, he's reminding us that no matter our circumstances and whatever is happening around us, that all of that is real. That's the crucible he talks mm-hmm. about, right? But that there is work that we can do that tending to our soul Mm. and paying attention to God's care and grace and how we open ourselves up to that is really important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how he talks about resilient leaders are not grounded in their success. They're grounded in something bigger than themselves. Yeah. I mean, that just, yeah. I feel like I need to write that on a sticky note and put it here at yeah. my desk because I feel yeah. like that's so important to remember. It's just so easy to get caught up in that, yeah. in our success-driven metrics and not see that we've really got to be focused on staying grounded. And, and these spiritual disciplines, this rule of life that he talks about, inviting us to think about what spiritual practices we need for the season we're in. I mean, that's the grounding work. That's so important. Yes. Yes, yes. So not keep on striving and plowing <laughs> right. through and, and, you know, being your best, most competent leader, but really slow yourself down, mm. pay attention to who you are and what your body is telling you and what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through you. And anyway, yeah. it, it's, it's really, really good. So I'm looking forward to you all getting to hear this. 
I should note that Bishop Huey joined me for this interview with Todd, so you will hear her asking a few questions. And I, I really am excited for you to hear this conversation again or for the first time. It's the, it's, it's the kind of thing you can listen to over and over again. Before we get into it, a, a quick programming note. The first episode of our new season with my co-host Gil Rendell drops the week after Labor Day. And so if you're not signed up for our email newsletter, I hope you will by clicking on the link in the show notes so that you won't miss any of our episodes or the extra resources that we share through that. You can also reply directly to me on our email. I would love to hear from you. All right, let's listen to our conversation with Todd Bolsinger. Joining us in our conversation about resilient leadership today is Todd Bolsinger, who just wrote a fantastic book about resilient leadership entitled Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change, which we'll be digging into in our conversation today. Perhaps you know him best from his book, Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory, which is one we use and recommend often in our work at TMF. Frankly, it's on my short list of books every church leader needs to have within arm's reach today. So following 17 years as senior pastor of San Clemente Presbyterian Church, Dr. Bolsinger currently serves as senior congregational strategist and associate professor of leadership formation at Fuller Seminary. You can follow Todd on Twitter at Todd Bowl, that's T-O-D-B-O-L, or text the word change to 66866. Welcome, Todd. We are so glad you're here. Thank you, Lisa. It's really nice to be with you. So you talk in your book about how when we think about resilience, it usually falls into two categories, surviving in the face of harsh personal adversity and uh, bouncing back from a failure or setback and then continuing on. But you go even deeper. So talk with us about how you think about resilience. Yeah, thank you for asking. It, you know, so there's lots of books and lots of conversation about resilience, especially at the end of 2020 when we've had this pandemic and global recession and social unrest. I mean, people are really trying to figure out how do you hang in there? How do you stay in the middle of the things we're called to do? And for me, the most helpful definition came from this person named Andrew Zolli, who basically describes resilience as the capacity to maintain core purpose and integrity. Maintain core purpose and integrity in the midst of a changing world. Now, if you spend five minutes with me, you know that a maintain is not a verb that gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm not a big maintain guy. But what really matters in times of change is figuring out how do you maintain the most important things, especially when we might have to lose a lot of things. How do you maintain your core purpose and integrity? And how do you stay in the thing we are called to because it's really important when everything, every part of us might want to just give up. And so uh, that's the way I think of resilience. I think of it's that capacity to do that, to maintain that core purpose and integrity. And I think that's actually a very transformational and formational goal that has to be attained. And Todd, your, your, the subtitle of your book is How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. Well, here we are in the crucible of change right now, to say the very least. Could you talk more about that phrase, um, crucible of change, and what your observations are about this time in particular and the potential for leadership formation during this time of change? 
Yeah, thank you, Bishop. You know, crucible is a language that shows up in a lot of leadership literature. They often talk about leadership as a crucible, and a crucible where leaders find out their identity in the in the struggle and the challenge of leading. What I discovered in the last five years traveling around the country talking about adaptive change through Canoe in the Mountains is that very often I would get invited to really nice places to speak to really good folks, and then someone like the bishop would invite me to dinner and then say, hey, thank you for coming. I don't think we have anybody who can do that. <laughs> and so I was, I was like, well, wait a minute. I got to do a better job of training people. And then it was really very, the kind of a tender moment because they would say, look, I don't know if we have anybody who has the stomach for that. And one pastor said to me, you know, I think I can learn to lead change. I'm not sure I can survive it. And so we started realizing that the crucible of change, especially the faster the change is going, the more disruptive is really hard, but the hardest thing is right when you need to rally folks to a mission, it's your own internal people start to pull back. And so the giant crucible for most leaders and the giant challenge isn't the external challenges, as strong as they are, it's the internal resistance from people who want to kind of give up and go back. And you see this happening right now during the pandemic with lots of churches, right? You have pastors and leaders all saying, you know, we want to come out of this better than ever. We want the church to be more vibrant witness. And you've got church members saying stuff like, well, when can we just get back to singing? And I don't blame them. I mean, I I haven't sung with a congregation in, a, in nine months, right? I, like I, I sing my faith. But it's the only thing we're doing is trying to figure out how quickly we can get back to you know, potlucks and fellowship dinners and stuff, then we're going to miss an opportunity. And the crucible is actually having to help people go through the change. The congregations, the people, the people you lead go through the change that in the transformation that is called for by this moment. That's the real challenge. Okay, this feels really important because um, when we think about a crucible, and, and you talk about this, about a applying heat and experiencing the heat. Will you talk a little bit about what you mean by the heat? Because it may not be what, what we normally think of. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the imagery is a blacksmithing metaphor. And I, and I live in Los Angeles, right? So, so the, <laughs> I, I went to this urban blacksmithing community. There has not been a horse there in a hundred years, but there's a group of people who like practice blacksmithing as an art. And my wife happens to be an artist. So we go into this blacksmithing class, beginning blacksmithing class, and you walk into the place and it's literally, there's so many forges going on. It's warm in there. Like you're, you know, it's like, oh, this is hot. And you realize. Sure. Every single tool in there can kill you. Like this is a place where serious work is done. But if you just walk into that place and think you've done enough, you haven't transformed anything. You actually have to take steel and make it even hotter. You got to put it into the forge. And what I kept thinking about is my my dad is a guy whose favorite quote on leadership is from Harry Truman, right? If you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. Well, I want to say to most leaders, actually, it needs to be even hotter than the kitchen. And that's what makes it so difficult, is that you have to actually go into the place where for most of us as leaders, the hardest thing about leading change is our is having to grapple with our own vulnerability. How do I lead people when it's in a completely unprecedented, unpredictable, uncharted territory? They are looking at you for answers, and the only thing you can say with complete integrity is, I really don't know what we're going to do next but we are going to get through this together. And that's a hard moment. It's a vulnerable moment. 
And that's the vulnerability of self-reflection is where all the transformation into a resilient leader starts. So I want to say that back and see if I'm hearing this well. So we normally think of the heat, the heat of the kitchen, if you will, that's not even hot enough. We normally think of it as like all the things that are going on in our culture. We think of it as the heat of the pandemic and the change that it's causing. We think of the the anti-racism movement and the white supremacy tension. I mean, just we, we think about all these tensions and difficulties and we think about that as the heat. And I'm hearing you say very clearly that the heat is actually heat of self-reflection mm-hmm. that causes us to face our own vulnerability. Am I hearing that right? Exactly. So if those who would read the book would know that the exemplar of a tempered, resilient leader all the way through the book is Dr. Martin Luther King. What people don't realize is when he was stepped into leadership, one of the very first things that happened is he had this crisis. He had to come before God and say, why would you choose me? And it's in that moment of honest self-reflection that we see in his journals that we realized he had to go to a deeper place to lead this movement, especially a movement that would be shaped by forces on both sides. Some who thought they were being way too radical and disruptive, you know, like white pastors who wrote him a letter that he wrote that he had to respond to in the letter to the Birmingham jail. I'm, I'm very sensitive about that one because those were mostly Presbyterian pastors who wrote a letter saying, how dare you disrupt our town, right? Mm-hmm. How dare you disrupt our town with a, with a walk down the middle of the street with people in their Sunday best on Good Friday. Oh, that was so disruptive. And then on the other side, he had people, not just clergy saying he was being too radical, but he had others who wanted to go to violence and having to hold his convictions right there in the middle of it because he had this conviction about transformation and the transformation of the entire culture and of all people. Holding that required him to actually deal with a lot of his darkest doubts. He had to go to a place of self-reflection, and it's out of that self-reflection that the transformation begins to happen. And for many of us as leaders... The hard part about leadership is we thought when we got the title that that would be enough. (laughs) We thought, oh, as long as I have the power and the authority, that's enough. You don't realize the minute you step in there is actually when your biggest doubts, your greatest challenges you're going to be facing. Yeah, wow. Thank you. So there is so much in the book that that I would love to dig into and pull on these threads and and even through the whole movement of this image that you use of blacksmithing. Um, but I'm going to jump us to uh, another piece that you talk about where you talk about the character qualities of a resilient leader, teachable, mm-hmm. attuned, adaptable, tenacious, um, all leading to resilience. And, and I'm wondering how you identified these characteristics and why you think they're required for a tempered, resilient leader? Well, the first, the early, some of the most popular literature on resilience, think of like Angela Duckworth's book on grit. It's a great book, but what it really talks about is developing tenacity is really, really important. Well, what most people don't get is that there's a process to even developing tenacity. So what I wanted to do is go back and and identify what are the qualities that we see both in leadership literature and particularly in spiritual formation of the kind of leaders who have the ability to persevere under trial, right, if you think of it that way. And what you begin to realize is it starts actually with humility. Like the central quality of spiritual leadership is humility on both sides, both the leadership literature side and on the spiritual formation side. But humility is not self-effacement. It is teachability. 
It means mm-hmm. that even when I am the expert, even when I am the the pastor, the leader, the bishop, the whatever, I have to continue to be a learner. So it's so for so what's interesting is resilience and tempered resilience, which is a very particular way I talk about resilience, starts with the capacity to continue to be a learner and to take people through learning. And then it builds on empathy, which is what attunement is. Mm-hmm. Empathy is not just something that we use for pastoral care. Empathy is what we need for leadership because when you attune to people and they feel cared for, they will trust you and go further into their own pain and further into their own discomfort if they don't. So teachability and attunement and then adaptability, which is the wise application of our values. It's discerning what do we hold on to and what do we lose. What do we hold is critical that we cannot, we have to be stubbornly cling to because if we lose this, we lose our identity. And then what of all the rest of the other stuff that we have to be willing to lose? That adaptability is really necessary for tenacity because that's where creativity and innovation and possibilities come from. And then it leads to tenacity, the kind of strength that is needed. And what's interesting is that the spiritual practice that leads to tenacity is actually lament. So in each of them, I give some spiritual practices, but lament is really where we come to grips with. We believe this is we we tell the truth about how hard this is, and we have hope to stay in it. And that's a, from a spiritual point of view, tenacity is built through the spiritual practice of lament. So it's a process of formation all the way through. That's so helpful. Um, so helpful. And it, it leads me to that wonderful story you told in the last chapter of the book, in the epilogue, where this woman asks you a question that may be secretly being asked by every pastor these days, is why should anybody work so hard and face such resistance for so long? It's the big why question. I know you're bound to be hearing that as people you move around the country. So what do you say to our listeners who mm-hmm. uh, want to know why? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's really where I started, right? People saying, I don't think anybody has the stomach to do this. And I had to feel like I had to come back to it at the end. And the ultimate why, in one sense, is as simple as Jesus saying that the most important thing that we do is not one thing but two. Right, So Jesus disrupts the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, by saying equal to it is loving your neighbor. And that's completely disruptive, right? That was, I mean, there's a whole sets of scholars that think that was the moment that led him to the cross, is how dare you say that loving people is the same thing as loving God. God is one. There's one God. God is the one we serve. Jesus says equal to it is loving your neighbor. So there comes this deep moment for every leader to recognize all we're doing when we're leading change is we are trying to take our communities of faith and help them be faithful to that calling. As much as we love God, we must love our neighbor. If our neighbor is in pain and our neighbor is in need, we must be willing to be transformed so that the gospel can meet that need, so this community can meet that need. That's what the transformation is. So when people say, you know, why should I do this? In one sense, it's... um, I don't know any other way in a rapidly disruptive world to be able to fulfill Jesus' call to love our neighbor. I just don't know any other way. Because left to ourselves, we will love God and we will make ourselves comfortable. And we will pass by our neighbor. Wow. That is so important for us to hear right there. It also makes me think, I mean, as I think about 
what it takes to get us out of that place of comfort. We'll mm. love God and make ourselves comfortable. Ouch. <laughs> mm. um, I, it makes me think about that part of the, of the metaphor of the book where you talk about stress and that yeah. stress makes a leader, mm. you know, in a time when, frankly, everybody's feeling stressed. <laughs> Will you say a word about what you mean by that and how yeah. stress can make a leader? Uh, to understand this, let me just go go back a piece in the whole blacksmithing metaphor. So yeah, the black, please do. The blacksmithing metaphor came because um, I actually was visiting Washington, D.C., and I saw the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial and saw the section that says that right there on a piece of rock says, we'll build a hue out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. Hue, that's the verb, hue. And it comes, of course, from the, and that, um, that famous I Have a Dream speech, which most of us know probably by now in history, the I Have a Dream portion was actually uh, extemporaneous. He actually brought, it wasn't, in the, it wasn't in the notes. It's because Mahalia Jackson said to him, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And so he launches into it. But what you don't realize if you're just used to hearing the I Have a Dream speech is it starts with Isaiah 40. There's a vision of the world being transformed. And then he says, with this faith, I go back to the South. Now just think about that for a second. He's looking at 250,000 people. Many of them have come from the hoses and the dogs and the jails. And he says, with this faith, this vision of a, of a world that God is going to change, we will go back into the struggle. We'll go back to work. We'll get back to the marches. We'll get back to the work. And then he says, with this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. We'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation to a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. So we go back not to be dynamite that blows it up or a sledgehammer that smashes through it. We go back to be a chisel that will transform it, that will take a mountain of despair and turn it into stones of hope. And when I hear that phrase, I think First Peter, right? Let yourselves as living stones come to him who is a living stone and be built into a dwelling place for God. I hear him saying, with the faith that we have that God is going to transform the world, we go back and become a tool that God can use to make his presence known in the world right in the place of despair. That's the call. I say that because what you end up finding then is this imagery of a chisel that is a tool that is tempered is, is, re, is something that has to take place through the formation of steel that happens over a process of time. And that process of taking raw steel and turning it into a tool that can transform granite into stones or despair into hope is that process that we're in together. And it's the process that reminds us that we have to be in it all the time in our own work. And that's ultimately where the kind of the notion of tempered resilience comes from. And this is the, the image you carry all through the book, but it's, it's in the heat, it's in the stress that we are formed yeah. in order to move from being raw material, if you will, to being a tool yeah. that then yeah. makes tools. So I went to this blacksmithing class to learn this because I thought it was interesting. And I found out that the person who is the president of the blacksmithing community was a woman who was an artist. So I asked if I could visit her studio. And she said to me, she took me to her studio, which is this amazing place. And she said, here's the thing you need to understand. Every single time you take a hammer and you pound on steel, you're adding stress to the steel. It gets shaped and stronger. You're taking raw material and you're transforming the molecules by the pounding. But this is why it has to also be heated. 
Because if you pound on just cold steel, then it won't get shaped, right? It has to be heated up and vulnerable. It has to be held on an anvil, which is really important metaphor for the relationships. But it is in the pounding of the shaping, which is what I believe the spiritual practices do to us, that stress is added to the steel. And that very same stress makes it stronger so that when you then use the tool, it has the capacity to go through the to go through the rock. Now, here's the irony. The same pounding that shapes us, that adds stress to us, is the exact same thing that adds stress to us when the tool is used. So what happens is every single time you are being used in a hard place, more and more stress is being added to you. You get stronger. But if you keep going and keep going and keep going, eventually you become brittle and you break. She looked at me and she said, I can pound this piece of steel until I can finally break it. So you have to have a combination of adding the right amount of stress and also relieving stress. And a tempered steel is steel that has had stress removed so that it's not only stronger than the raw material, but it's also more flexible. And that's the sweet spot. It's between soft and brittle, not hard and, and, hard and brittle. It's, it's right in between both. Okay, this this is really important because this is tempered resilience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so bring that home to us. Like, think about what does that mean for a pastor today in very stressful circumstances? How how to to kind of keep that that to strike that balance or or that that yeah. sweet spot, as you say? Yeah. So, so it's two things. One is it's to know that when we are uh, being formed and we are being used to bring transformation, it is going to add more stress to us. And this process is going to strengthen us. But if all you do is continue to pound away, you will eventually explode. So you have to have a, a rhythm of leading and not leading. So the book is really how does tempered resilience happen through reflection relationships, and a rule of life in a rhythm of leading and not leading. The reflections of the fire, the relationships of the anvil, the rule of life is the shaping hammers, and then there has to be the rhythm of leading and not leading. That's the cooling process. And so for many of us, what I, what I often say to leaders is, you need to have places in your life where you know you are called to lead, and you need places in your life where you are not. Mm-hmm. You are just, you are, you know that this is not mine to transform. This is mine to enjoy, to receive, to take in. And, the, and this is important that I have both places in my life because I need to have places where I am relieving my stress so that I can get back to work. This is where the spiritual practices come in that you talked about too. And, and really, even where you began, I mean, that resilience happens when we're in touch with our identity and our purpose, our core, mm-hmm. so that we can lead out of that that feels really important yeah yeah the raw material of a leader this is throughout the book you'll hear that there's all these paradoxes this is one of the parts that has just been so fascinating to me right so strength comes from vulnerable self-reflection is a really important thing that the vulnerability of leadership requires relational security so so it's the hotter you're in, the harder you're in, the, the thicker your anvil needs to be, right? Mm-hmm. So the notion that you need more relationships when you're in leadership, not less. You need many more, not less. 
And one of the key parts of it is that the raw material is a grounded identity. And, and where that comes from is, is this notion of a grounded identity is it means that your identity is grounded in something other than your success as a leader. Really resilient leaders aren't the kind of people that say, I'm going to do this or die. No, no. Really resilient leaders are the people who say, I am grounded in something much bigger than this. And we see this in the life of Jesus, right? Before Jesus gave a sermon, did a miracle, confronted a power, exercised a demon, he went to the water and heard, you are my beloved child. You are the pride of my life, Eugene Peterson translates it. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us need to be grounded in something other than our success as a leader to know that we are then able to be resilient to the thing that God has called us to be. So, Todd, we've heard you talk about rule of life. You've mentioned it a couple of times already. Could you say more about that, why it's important, what what you mean by that, and how do you make it happen? So when I talk about a rule of life, I'm using that part of the tradition that says that you want a cohesive set of spiritual practices to grow in spiritual maturity. So like uh, the monastic orders had a rule of life that would, that they all shared together. I think every Christian, especially every Christian leader, needs to be really intentional about the set of spiritual practices that he or she needs in their life in order to be faithful to your calling. Now, what I've discovered is that many of us have spiritual practices that we've done for years. They're dear to us, right? They're like our favorite practices. So like I say, when I first decided to follow Jesus, I was a teenager. And my spiritual practices were practically monastic. Like I was like I was a youth worker, so I was poor. I was committed to celibacy. I was committed to poverty. I was single. I was committed to celibacy, whether I wanted to or not. I was committed to like you know, so like but I was also committed to reading the Bible, praying, going to church. Those things were great. But now I'm in a totally different place in my life. And so I remember when I became a pastor of a church and I realized I'm going to need to study the scripture a lot more to preach every week than, say, reading a chapter of the Bible every day. And I'm going to need to have a deeper prayer life because I need to pray for my congregation. So becoming a pastor transformed my spiritual practices. What I want to say to most leaders today is, if you have you had a moment to rethink the spiritual practices you need in the face of the changes that you are called to lead through? So what I do in the book is I create a set of, of, like, I call people to a rule of life, a set of intentional spiritual practices for the very purpose of creating resiliency in your leadership. And, and again, Dr. King is the, metaf- is the example for this. There was a set of covenant practices that every person who was committed to the nonviolent movement had to, to take on. You had to commit to in order to join in the marches including every single day reading the scriptures and praying for your enemies. And I think there, if you start thinking about the fact that many of us, especially if we're in leadership, we, you know, we probably haven't taken a long time to reflect back on what are the practices I need today for the mission that I've been called to fulfill today and how might they need to change? And in the book, I give a few practices that, are, that I've seen as being kind of common practices for resilient leaders. Yeah, really. Um, Just thinking about how we can get into a really comfortable place with Mm -hmm. our practices, and then they become, you know, road or perfunctory and Mm -hmm. and, uh, to examine them in a way that says, what is God asking of me right now? And how do I practice a rule of life that that feeds into that purpose, Mm -hmm. that shapes me, helps me be formed for this purpose? 
Oh, I remember being a young Christian and reading the scriptures and being disrupted by it. Like, yes. do I really believe? Like, now I read the scriptures and most of the time it just to bring me comfort. <laughs> like, right. there's nothing wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with that at all. Like, these are familiar words. Oh, how great this is. It's really different, however, to be in a moment where you start saying, what are the practices I need to become resilient? Ooh. Right. I, those are probably not things, those are things that are going to feel like they pound on me a bit. And there's some of those right. Yeah, that turn up the self-reflection, that yeah, make, indeed. you know, give me new eyes to see, the, yes. right? Wow. Yeah. yeah, that is so good. Okay, so the last thing we're asking all our guests is to uh, complete these three sentences. It's sort of a <laughs> rapid fire round, right? So mm -hmm. just first thing that comes to your mind. So the first, resilience is? Not natural. Resilience is, is, is you need to form resilience. We all think we can just muscle it out and grip it out and rise to the occasion. We actually need to be formed for resilience. Yeah, wow, that's good. So when I think of resilience, I think of? Well, I think, I think of um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think of the people in the civil rights movement. I think of the African-American church that has been faithful for centuries. I think of the immigrant church. Um, I think one of the things I think about is the people who have who have come to the United States and brought their Christian faith and are not always experiencing welcome. I, I think about the church that is the in the global south. When I think of resilience, I think of the Nickel Mines Amish, the group of people who um, forgave the man who killed their children. Okay, one more. If you want to cultivate resilience... You need to go on a process of formation, of reflection, relationships, and a rule of life in a rhythm of leading and not leading. I mean, that's, that's really the em emphasis of my book. Perfect, perfect. So the book is Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. And Todd Bolsinger, we are so grateful for your time with us, for helping us really dive into resilience with new eyes. So thank you, thank you. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.